0: Daisy. Come on, Daisy.
1: What's Daisy doing, Richard? She's, uh,
0: she's complaining.
1: Is she tired already? She's not
0: tired. She wants Daisy, which is why she keeps looking over her shoulder. Come on, Daisy.
1: Really, is she that bond? Daisy, is come here. She's so used to getting her you own way, go. but now look
0: you've um, tempted her with blandishments.
1: This week I travelled to Northampton to go out with pop star-turned-priest Reverend Richard Coles. I remember Richard really well from his days in the Communards, so I was fascinated to hear how he's made that unlikely career transition And I also wanted to meet his five Dachshunds. Five! But we just took one of them out for a walk, the adorable Daisy. Richard, as you'll hear, is utterly fascinating. He's an incredibly bright and interesting and funny man. But he's also been through some tough times and emerged from it with a lot of wisdom. You can catch Richard regularly on Radio 4's Saturday Live. And he's written some brilliant books as well. I actually really recommend his two autobiographies, Fathomless riches and bringing in the sheaves, which you can get on Amazon. I loved Richard and his partner David, who's also a priest, and their five sausage dogs, of course. So I will be making a return to that vicarage, and no, not in a flea bag way. I really hope you enjoy this. If you do, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Here's the Rev. Moo,
0: <coughs> come on, move good girl. Okay darling, we'll see you later. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Come on, Dave.
1: Listen. Do you want to get him in there? I can't bear this. I'm crying every time I... (laughs) I'm sorry darling, we won't be long. We love you. Bye. See you later. Oh. Come on. Right, come on. on, on. Now, Now. all of you, go. Stirred. He wasn't oh, talking H- to us, by the way. Oh,
0: there's eight, there. Hey, come
1: on, you. Come on. You OK. OK. You get in there, not you, the dog. Right. <laughs> I wasn't speaking to a partner like that, by the way, Richard.
0: Oh, no, sorry, I do.
1: <laughs> Is it like that every time you leave the house? Yes. Are we going to get in the car? Yeah. <gasps> so where are we driving to? We are
0: going to go to... There's a tiny, there's a sort of little tributary of the eyes, which is a little river which meanders at the bottom of the valley, Yeah. so we're going to walk down to there.
1: Do you think Daisy senses she's going to have a dog walk imminently? Oh yeah.
0: Um, and she's slightly distressed because David isn't with us and um, she's very, uh, she doesn't really, I think, think very much of me. I'm useful there <laughs> as a dispenser of goods and services but she doesn't really think much
1: of me. I should say, David is your partner.
0: David is my partner. Yeah. And Daisy, who was also first. a priest. Also a priest, yeah. Um, and and you know dogs, especially dachshunds, they tend to be loyal to one. So, I mean, I, of course we love them all, don't, don't, don't I actually really genuinely do love them all, but you do develop more of a rapport with some than with others. Um, I
1: might introduce you again when we go on the walk, but I'm going to say I'm in a car in Northamptonshire at the moment with someone I'm a huge fan of, and it's the and it's Daisy and it's Daisy (laughs) the the sausage dog. It's the Rev Richard Cole. I don't I don't know if it's okay to call you the Rev.
0: No, Richard's fine. Lots of people call me Rev. if you like that? Do you mind
1: being called Rev? No, no, that's fine. Is it like Mister?
0: Oh no, Rev's just everyone's calls me Rev. Okay.
1: Come on, Rev. Well you were the inspiration for Rev anyway. Well The TV show.
0: Kind of one of them. Come on! Good. Daisy! i a bike. Mimu, come on, darling. Yes. There we go. Good girl.
1: Richard's taken us into the lovely countryside and there's an abandoned Lucas A bottle Three days. and an abandoned packet of uh, Super Kings. Come on! Here we go, this is lovely.
0: We've got a man on a bike, which to Daisy is like Christmas and birthdays.
1: Does she like men on bikes? She likes
0: barking at men on bikes.
1: Oh, does she? So she
0: might put up a spirited greeting to this chap. Over there you can see one of the follies of the pack. We had a, a squire... Um, Macworth Dolben in the 1850s and 60s built a number of follies one of which the loveliest one fell down unfortunately and killed the lady who lived in it but this was um, a windmill that he sort of pimped that's for gothic reasons Oh,
1: I love a folly
0: and uh, a very nice it is too
1: that's so beautiful oh the man Daisy on the bike's well. coming yeah we'll just get out of his we'll way look, we'll give way to him Daisy's being very good she's
0: well she won't be for long I'm afraid she's fond of cyclists but in a, as a sort of meal Oh, does she? <laughs> Hi.
1: Hello. Come on, Dace. Do you think, Richard, that... You know, I mean, you're both, oh, sure. which we'll get on to, but famous people... they People who are well-known see the world through a slightly more... I think a slightly more benign prism, because people are happy to see them. And I would say that's probably true for people in the clergy so I think you're wearing your uniform as I call it your work uniform today yeah you've got your dog collar on
0: yeah do
1: you do you think that people you know people sort of smile and look calm when they see you
0: well it's um, you can elicit widely differing reactions I mean some people do Uh, I see it's a very good traffic calming measure if I'm walking down church hill in my collar it's a rat run but everyone slows down. It's like seeing a 30 sign. They see the collar and they think, oh, best behaviour or something. <laughs> so that's useful. Um, <laughs> In case you a, tell God. Well, I don't know, it's just a reminder of, oh, I want to be on best behaviour. But that can also be extremely annoying because sometimes people are less than direct with you mm. because they want to... Hello, Days. She does like to wander a little bit. And Come on, Daze. Smell the various fluvia of animals alive Go and dead. Go on,
1: pe- people are less direct with you.
0: Well, because they, you know, it's, a, it's traditionally... You're like the school swat. Well, no, it's something people project onto. Mm. So clergy, I think perhaps like doctors or teachers, uh, people import to their um, encounter with you stuff. And sometimes the worst thing is when you see people who look guilty, that we make them feel worse. And I hate that. So you have to sort of, on the one hand try to use to your best advantage mm. um, the uniform but also, on the other hand, be aware and mm. sensitive to it might not be received in the spirit in which it's intended. And also clergy can be you know, notoriously bossy and pompous and self-regarding.
1: Daisy's so happy. Do you want to introduce us to your dog, Richard? Yeah.
0: Well, we have five dogs, um, five sausage dogs, Dachshunds, and Daisy is both number one in terms of age and also our alpha interesting backstory she's um she's a, a white and tan dachshund with blue eyes merle coloring which is very rare mm. and usually and, and advised and, and properly rare because to get a dachshund in with those characteristics it can be quite risky breeding mm. and Daisy was a gift which was given to me by Lord Palumbo of the Ministry of Sound whom I met <laughs> once and we had an interesting conversation and he seemed to take rather a shine to me, so he said, I'll buy you a dog.
1: And when was this?
0: This was 10 years ago, 11 right. years ago. And I thought, yes, of course you'll da 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 da. Next day, his PA phoned up, and Daisy was dispatched by limousine to London, and we met at Pet Kingdom at Harrods. Like,
1: like, um, and James Richie bought Which, Well,
0: yeah, and James uh, bought Daisy her entire trousseau at trousseau. vast expense. And I had to pretend we hadn't looked up on a catalogue all the things we wanted. Um, <laughs> so I pretended to be sort of naively blinking at this stuff, but actually we had a quite a worked-out shopping list. And if James was aware of that, I don't know, I expect so, because he's yeah. rather shrewd. Yeah. But anyway, the long and the short of it was, we got Daisy, who is the most adorable dog.
1: Oh, she is absolutely adorable. But she was
0: a gateway drug, as far as accents are concerned, yes. because um, the, f- you know, the gates opened and another four piled through.
1: Well, you say that, but I met your partner, David. Yeah. Who I really liked, by the way. Good. Um, He's handsome as well, isn't
0: he? He is very handsome. Don't tell him that. Why? Well, because he might realise how much (laughs) higher than my league he's in, which wouldn't work for me. That's not
1: true. I think you're a lovely couple. Well, thank you. Um, But does he, it seems to me like... He's been the chief architect of the, the dog overload. Is that would that be right? Well,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm not consulted, so <laughs> I. I mean, our most recent arrival, General Gusta. Um, I found out about that on Twitter. <laughs> I was away, and I came home to find a fifth dog. But that's the same with the fourth dog too.
1: So take us through all the names.
0: Well, there's Daisy, Daisy, who we have
1: here, <coughs> who we, we have partly him? have with us. I should say, because I really bonded with Daisy.
0: You did. So,
1: as soon as I, I was in the vicarage. Yes, I know.
0: There's a whorishness about Daisy, How dare
1: you. and she does
0: throw it. No, it's about Daisy. There's absolutely nothing <laughs> no, Rachel, about I said, you. I really
1: bonded with her, and yeah. you said, she's "Yes, a whore. there's a whorishness yeah. about her." She's a
0: total whore. She is a total whore, actually, <laughs> and she's nothing she likes more than having her tummy rubbed. And you were so generous in your affection and attendance that that went down very well. How is indeed.
1: she? Well, I love a sausage dog.
0: Everyone loves a sausage.
1: Well, I think I particularly like them. I think I was oh, saying to you earlier because I'm small, and and
0: identify.
1: Yeah, I do with the uh, the body proportions. We get about as best we can, <laughs> <laughs> but life can be a challenge. I like these whippets. The thing I you like. The same about... bolts of the dog world.
0: No, I know. I mean, I love whippets actually. But um, I've always had dachshunds from when I was a kid. So I've had thirteen now, I think. So obviously really? I'm pretty breed loyal. And um, no, fourteen now is Gusta. Um, I like they are independent and feisty. Mm. and just very loyal and you know that you know a dog owner you know how important that relationship between human and dog is
1: well I want I want a dog to be sort of a bullion and effervescent and good fun and to to turn on the charm when the guests arrive but also I like them to be to want to snuggle up oh yeah in front of a movie or something
0: we may have to broach that sensitive subject of sleeping arrangements
1: well, listen, I'm going to have to tell you something because I'm afraid David's already given me the heads up on this. Oh, OK. I asked David back in the vicarage earlier, do you let the dog sleep on the bed? And your partner confirmed that the dogs are very much allowed on the bed.
0: Yes, to the point where <laughs> they kind of look at us sometimes thinking, why are you on the bed? <laughs> so. Well, we I'm have... a
1: dog-on-the-bed person too.
0: I know, I think more and more people are, and I feel slightly bad about that because I'm sure it's bad practice and all the rest of it. But actually, I can't think of anything I like more than having five sausage dogs snuggling up to you in bed. I mean, you need a big bed.
1: I think it's strange when people leave them in the kitchen and say, you know, sometimes people will say, you have to show them who's boss. And I just think, well, I'm glad I'm not married to you. (laughs) I mean, what, you share your home with someone and treat them like a servant. I there just is,
0: I know what you mean, there is something, isn't there, that brings out the cartman in people. Respect my authority. <laughs> and uh, I don't think that, need, that should be encouraged. I mean, obviously safety. and yeah. um, uh, There are certain things essential to um, contented, happy and functional living. Yes. Uh, but I'm very happy to let dogs take up a large part of our life.
1: And you, so talk me through your history with dogs, Richard, because you grew up not, I mean, this is, the, this is where you grew up. This was your manor, wasn't yeah. it? It was Kettering?
0: Well, near there. It's sort yeah. of actually in between Kettering and Findon, a place yeah. called Barton Seagrave. And we're in
1: Findon right now, we should say. Are we allowed to say that? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yes, you're a sort of public figure, really, in that well, sense.
0: Well, like, every vicar is, in a way. Yeah. Um,
1: and and um, your background, I read your book, which I really love. Thank you. Um, was, and just about... Your childhood was interesting to me because it was, it was relatively prosperous, wasn't it? Yes. The, we sho- the sh- shoe, sort of, it was a fortune made up of shoes, essentially. Yeah,
0: my great-great-grandfather, um, well, he was an inventor and he was one of the people who invented the machines that mechanised shoe production. And that kind of industrialised this part of the world, which had been, you know, agricultural pretty much beforehand. There'd always been leather around here because of tanning. Because we have lots of rivers and oak forests yeah. and oak bark used for tanning. And um, so the leather work had been a, a long time a feature of this part of the world. But it was the mechanisation that turned it into a mm. county-wide industry. And my family caught that rising tide. I mean, completely uh, nondescript and unrecorded in history until that moment. Ah. So there weren't, there's nothing, no grandness in the background, just... Um, enterprise and energy I think and so my my great grandfather took over and then my grandfather took over my father took over and by that time it was a big thriving industry but um, completely destroyed in the 70s by cheap imports he came back from the factory one day and he had this pair of shoes and he took out one and it was this lovely brown loafer and he said this is from Portugal or Spain I can't remember but he said it's better than we can make them it's cheaper than we can make them and the writing was on the wall yeah and so this once great industry that employed tens of thousands of people and made literally millions and millions of pairs of boots and shoes and you pick brilliant. up on
1: things like that as a kid don't you do you know what i mean just a shift in your parent you think oh this is they look worried or they look you know
0: and also of course i think children i said it was very status conscious and i kind of felt that this decline in our fortune would lead to a decline in prestige and i didn't like that at all in a rather um, mercenary sort of way <laughs> so and it coincided with sort of teenagehood and adolescence when yeah. you know pecking order your place in the world that stuff is sort of unusually accented well, you i di- mean i'm just embarrassed about it now because are you well yes because my poor old father was trying desperately to keep a show on the road in impossible circumstances yeah and it was deeply difficult for him because it wasn't just us you know there were lots of people who he employed and who he felt responsible for and he tried his I mean he tried beyond endurance to make it work but it was impossible
1: and it was you and your two brothers wasn't it yeah and were you a close family
0: I mean yes in the in the perfectly ordinary sense we were it's an interesting one that because yes of course we were you know it's a family that we grew up but we went on different paths quite quickly once we got to adolescence. so I went off to London came out went to london screamed around london the alternative gay scene my older brother joined the metropolitan police so Mm. we were both in london at the same time but our paths were going in very different directions Mm. except not that different because as you get older you realize that you have far more in common than you think and we've all got closer as we've got older actually which has been great
1: well it's true because you all end up essentially thinking oh that music's a bit loud and you all end up looking at like arthur scargill male and female it's, it's <laughs> that's what binds us all you're right
0: eventually <laughs> you look in the mirror and you'll see the president of the national union of mine workers <laughs> not in his finest um display either looking back at you it's true
1: because someone said to me that recently they said oh don't you worry that's aging i said well we'll all end up as arthur that's... scargill it's fine you just have to walk into it Daisy, on, daisy what's daisy doing she's, uh,
0: she's complaining
1: is she tired already? She's not
0: tired. She wants David, which is why she keeps looking over her shoulder. Come on, Daisy.
1: Really? Is she that Bond? Daisy's She's so used yes to getting her you own way. Go. But now, look,
0: you've um, tempted her with blandishments. <laughs> and she likes that. But you see, she keeps looking over her shoulder.
1: I get the sense that you were always quite precocious. Yes. And I mean that in a positive way, not in a sort of. Pain in the an Tomorrow, way, But precocious in terms of your reading ability and your you know, where you came from, in a sense, was that, was that always something that was evident when you were growing up? Yes, and you were I think di- so. You were other, you know?
0: Well, yeah, I think so, actually. And I, and I was... I kind of read voraciously, and I was, I was good at music, and all those sorts of... I mean, it's a screamingly gay child, I think about although I didn't realise that's what it was. But if you looked at me then... I mean, I used to dress up in a bedspread and do dancing to My Body Lies Over the Ocean <laughs> in the sunroom for the delight of my parent, my mother's knit and natter group. I mean... It couldn't... It was really just I was one... Saying, I
1: would have paid a great deal <laughs> of money to see that. Maybe you could do, you could reenact that for us later. Well, I
0: think Strictly Come Dancing <laughs> did somehow <laughs> evoke memories of my first excursions in the field yes, of dance. Yes, you were on
1: that, weren't you?
0: Yes, but it was um, a, a very uh, vivid display <laughs> of how that's an ambition that's probably best left unfulfilled.
1: Were you sort of closer to your mum or your dad? Or did, was it... Because I always think, you know, like, I had a very... I think my, my mum and my sister had a close relationship, so I think there was a sense of me with my dad thinking, all oh, right, I'll pick the drummer then. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like He's a bit more shit, but I think I'd rather pretend that I like the drummer than, than carry on wanting Brandon from The Killers <laughs> and fighting for his affections. Do you know what I mean? I'd rather just pretend that I just wanted the drummer.
0: Well, I think.
1: Complicated way of saying were you closer to your mother or your father?
0: Well, it's an interesting one. I mean, both of them were unfailingly devoted and loving, and and, and, I never doubted for a second Mm. of their their love or their support. But I think I was probably closer to my mother. I don't know why. Um, I was second born, you see, and I wonder if mum kind of looked at the second born in a way that was different from first born. I don't know. Um, But mum and I have always been. On each other's wavelengths, yeah. We still are.
1: And I was also... You wrote about when you came out, and <laughs> I loved it. It's one of the best coming-out stories I think I've ever heard in my whole life, <laughs> which was, why you tell me, your mother.
0: Well, I thought it was... I was 16. <laughs> yeah. And it was an era when coming out was quite a big deal. I mean, it still is a big deal, but it was in the, the sort of social context was really yeah. quite... Uh, very. Uninclusive and unkind, actually. So it was a big deal, but I wanted to tell my mother because I thought it was important to be honest. And uh, so I, I came up with a method which was basically to play her Tom Robinson's Glad to Be Gay. I think I got to five times before she said, Darling, are you trying to tell me something? And I said, What do you mean? And she said, Do you think you might be gay? I said, I know I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> and then she was a sort of So I think she just said, well, that's lovely. Can we not have that record again, please? um,
1: (laughs) I'm with your mum.
0: (laughs) And uh, that was that. And then, uh, so that was, Cat was out the bag. And was
1: your dad okay with it? Yes,
0: I mean, she said, I'll tell your father. I mean, I don't think any parent then, uh, you know, would have relished the thought of a child saying, I'm gay. I was so touched yesterday by well, Prince William. Well, except my parents,
1: who my mother, who is an actor... Oh, they would have preferred to, well, it. Well, she, oh, no, she said to me, it is my greatest tragedy <laughs> in life that I never had a gay son. <laughs> son. Greatest tragedy? <laughs> the Honestly, greatest she's tragedy crying. is that
0: I've got grandchildren.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>, she's <was laughs> devastated. She used to say, look, if you are gay, you honour... We were like, no, we're not. I'm really sorry, we get to apologise for it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it was sort of, I'll talk to your father.
0: Yeah, and it was... Um, I mean we got there it was not something they wanted to hear Uh, and also you know i had grown up in an era where you internalized a great deal of that very negative stuff and it was a kind of long years of trying to not be defined by these sort of negative uh views stereotypes so that took a, a bit of work actually and then after a while it just becomes perfectly normal then after a while it just becomes boring
1: I remember a friend's parents saying, the thing is, your life's a lot harder. I always remember that. Although, interestingly... People still get
0: beaten up in the street for it.
1: But that's what I mean. When I say your life's a lot harder, it was almost like, I think it would be as if you had a choice. So it would be better if you didn't choose that path. Yeah, yeah. I know, I'm not suggesting it's, you know, everyone's all like my parents and very accepting. I'm just saying, it was the idea that, are you sure you want to make that choice? As if it was a choice that I found strange.
0: Well, see, cause I've never experienced it as a choice at all. And, and in no, my experience, cause it's not. nobody. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to generalise from mm. my own experience, but I've, you know, I've been out and about in the gay scene for 40 years. Mm. And very unusual to have anyone say that they felt they chose it. Yeah. Perhaps more women than men, in a way, I don't know. But, you know, sexual identity is very complicated in how we get to where we are. Yeah. It's, it involves, uh, you know, numbers of things. It's not straightforward.
1: I know you had quite a hard time afterwards, though, yeah. didn't you? And you had to really struggle with the mental health. And what, why, what do you think that was prompted by? Do you think it was almost a release of tension? or? Well, it, I
0: had a sort of, what used to be called a nervous breakdown. I'm not sure what you call it now. Um, after I came out, and I think it was this sort of.
1: You go first. You lead the way. What I do think you it's think? going to be a bit Yeah, Wanda. Yeah, just go here. Right? Yeah, one,
0: yeah. Just okay, here. Yeah. Daisy's found some mm-hmm. droppings oh, Daisy! to roll in.
1: It's so picturesque here. There's a lovely little bridge for you, Daisy. You don't fall in. She's borrowing. Are they borrowers?
0: They are. Well, they like a borrower, but mostly what she really likes to do is to roll in the smelliest droppings of nature that you can imagine. Come on, Daisy. There was one time when we were in Cornwall. We were just getting a car for a 12-hour drive home. Yeah. And um, Pongo rolled in fresh fox shit. (laughs) And we got in the car and realised that we simply had to delay our journey because there was no (laughs) way we were going to do twelve hours with that.
1: Um so so you were saying, yeah, so you had what would have been called a nervous breakdown back then.
0: Yeah, well I ended up hospitalised in a psychiatric hospital when I was seventeen.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, after a suicide attempt. And it was a very bleak and horrible time. Mm. You know, kids at that age, when you're kind of running into the sort of challenges of life mm. you're they're overwhelming and also you don't know that you can survive them because you haven't survived it yet if you see what I mean yes and so I think young people are very vulnerable at that just not so I just you survive. Know. so I became that part of that statistic and also one in four yeah. uh, gay men experiences sort of um I think suicidal thoughts as a consequence of because you grow up thinking you are at odds with the world and some people are yeah. quite happy to be adults with the world but for a timid conventional soul like me it's kind of not what i wanted and it took a while to sort of feel to understand that that was perfectly fine so i had this uh, summer in the wonderful st andrew's hospital in northampton which was a very uh, liberal and tolerant regime with a lovely doctor a psychiatrist called colin wilson who was the doctor in the um, company the magazine company where which he dispensed oh, yeah. advice in a column And I bumped into him. We met up, in fact, only a couple of months ago. Hadn't seen him since I was 17. Mm. And had a very jolly time. But he was lovely. And I just remember him. I sort of confessed my dark secret of homosexuality to him. And he was utterly unconcerned about it and reflected back. That's just a variation on the universal theme. And it's nothing to worry about. And that was very powerful.
1: I think it's when someone sort of punctures what you think is is a drama and says it's okay yes you was know,
0: <laughs> slightly disappointing when you're in the market for a drama so I was I did get growingly dissatisfied with the sort of lack of reaction of people as my coming out story unfolded into a sort of war and peace saga multi-episode big screen adaptation and I noticed the audience was getting more and more bored which was um, <laughs> so that you was hearing people
1: saying I'm going," they were like yeah anyway yeah, so yeah, yeah.
0: um <laughs> I mean, yeah not reeling with surprise
1: so, but you did... It was after that you were hospitalised and then you sort of came out and you...
0: Yeah, I was OK then. Yeah. Better. and
1: that's when, And then you sort of... You studied in London, didn't you?
0: Well, not really. I came to London. You when came was, to London. And was I sort it, of sorry, yeah. ran around London. And that's mm. when I met Jimmy. So I was a gay runaway, like so many of us who arrived in London in 1980, um, you know, in search of a better life. Mm. And I don't mean... Uh, in the sense that Alan Sugar might mean it but in the sense of trying to evolve an, ident- an identity for ourselves that wasn't negatively defined yeah. we wanted to be autonomous we wanted to, to, to declare ourselves who we were and of course that was a tr- you know, theme that gay liberation the first generation which was before us had kind of marked that out what we had that was different was we'd been through punk yeah. so we had that kind of energy and edge and non negotiable this is sort
1: of a early 80s or mid 80s wasn't it
0: this was early 80s I arrived in London in nineteen eighty. That was just
1: before sort of Bronsky Beat essentially.
0: Yeah, Bronsky Beat came on about eighty three, I think. Yeah. Jimmy and I met in nineteen eighty became friends. And then after Bronsky Beat I joined Bronsky Beat and then Jimmy and I left and form the communards and then uh to the surprise of everybody, not least me, I seemed to become a sort of pop star.
1: <laughs> but you were always musically gifted, weren't you? Well,
0: that makes me sound like Mozart. I mean, I wasn't particularly gifted. I could hope to you know, play the piano a bit, but um,
1: you taught. Did you teach yourself to play
0: saxophone? Saxophone. Yes, but not very well. Um, I wouldn't claim to be an autodidact of world renown. I wasn't that at all. I just wanted to play the saxophone. Also, I wanted. I'd been brought. up was a chorister when I was a kid, so I grew you up were, with yeah, that classical tradition, and I wanted to sort of learn to play in a different way. Um,
1: but then, also, there must have been as well. Because anyone who willingly goes into that line of work, I suppose, or seeks out that, there is a sort of there's a look at me element. But I got the sense when you were in the communards, and again, it's something I really respected your honesty over that. That it was difficult for you because oh. you were sort of grinding away, slogging away, working Working
0: at my it. yeah, my fingers to the bone, standing next to someone who just happened to be one of the most preternaturally gifted singers of the era, and. And Jimmy was and is an extraordinarily charismatic and he could just open his mouth and without any preparation or effort could sing sublimely beautifully um, whatever he wanted to sing. And, uh, and also he had this... There was something about Jimmy that people found, you, know, you couldn't take your eyes off him. He was just mm. such an extraordinary talent. And I wasn't that. I was the sort of workaday um, Uh, one who stood at at the back. I remember once shooting a video and I overheard... I
1: remember you very vividly, though, because that was my era, very much. Yeah, go on, what did you (coughs) overhear?
0: Well, somebody's saying, uh, the one on the keyboards, can you just put him in more shadow? (laughs) And so I I was literally put in the shadow. And, of course, you pretend that it's all... that you don't mind, but actually I did mind. And uh, Jimmy and I had rather a... It's a very difficult relationship, singer and instrumentalist, because you both, without realising it, sort of envied the other. I think, for yeah. me, it was Jimmy had this extraordinary degree of attention and um, at, at, the, at my expense, whereas I think Jimmy sometimes sort of looked at me and everyone thought that I was the clever one. And, um, and we weren't old enough or experienced enough to be happy with each other's attributes, I think.
1: Well, also, it sounds like, self-confessedly, he seems like, quite a sort of you know a big character in terms of impulsive moods and you know yeah and an
0: alcoholic as yeah, well yeah yeah which is now um on top of it, i mean didn't jimmy stopped drinking a few years ago oh, and really? kind of only after he stopped drinking i think got into rehab and now he lives a sober life and yeah. helps other people to do so which is brilliant uh it's only now that i realise that so much of what was challenging about jimmy was to do with his drinking yeah. But, of course, if you're everyone's drinking like an idiot in their 20s, you just think you're being in your 20s. Yeah. You don't think this is someone who's got an alcohol problem. As the years go by, if you continue to drink like that, you begin to see it much more as a problem.
1: You were sort of, you know, having a bit of a party lifestyle, weren't you, back then? Yes. Because the Don't Leave Me This Way became so huge. It was just everywhere, yeah. you know? And you made a lot of money out of it.
0: Yeah, and it's sort of, the thing that was interesting about it, it sort of propelled us from mm. respectable league to kind of bigger league. So that record had such an impact in so many places that if we went to, if we were on tour, we went to a place where we'd been number one without knowing it yet. Mm. The experience was just, So you would walk into a venue and there would be this kind of wall of sound of people Kind of screaming and chucking stuff their knickers did Never you like
1: that or were you uncomfortable with it or how did you feel about it or did you again feel oh jimmy's getting the more of the attention again
0: must have liked it mm. i think i probably had slightly mixed feelings about it
1: mm. we had a row
0: about it i remember once we came on stage in dublin and met this wall of sound i remember saying to jimmy afterwards god no one could hear what we were doing because of the screaming and he sort of was cross because he thought I was on a downer, which I probably was, actually. Mm. Jimmy, of course, is the singer and the front man, had that relationship with an audience, which is different from an instrumentalist. Mm. Because he could... And Jimmy has the ability to do that, you know. They're like surfers. They manage to jump on this extraordinarily dynamic wave and stay standing up. And he could do that. And I don't think I could do that.
1: The bit at which, you know, things you start to think, hang on, this isn't fun anymore. And things were imploding was I suppose excess, just rock and roll stuff, wasn't it, really? Well but also probably self medicating in a way, do you think?
0: Well, the thing that changed everything in was the arrival of HIV, you see. Yes. Because of who we were when we were, middle years of the nineteen eighties. Days Daisy Moo moo, come on. This way. Crazy.
1: Moo Good girl. What's no. this? You see, they have a thing, Richard, called Stubborn Shih Tzu Syndrome.
0: Oh, well, they've got that. And I
1: think, what can we call Stubborn Sausage Dog? Yes. She's so beautiful. We should let people know she's got the most amazing blue eyes. Daisy, come on. Daisy's the most entitled princess.
0: She certainly is. She took
1: the treat, and normally the social contract with the dog is that you give the treat, and they think, okay, you gave me something, so I'll do what you ask for. But she took the treat dumped it and then ran runs off. Runs
0: off in her own thing. <laughs> If we go this way, she'll follow. Daisy, Daisy come,
1: on. come on. I've got the treat, babes.
0: Daisy, come on, darling.
1: So go on. You were saying we were talking about HIV.
0: Yeah. Well, that came along out of the blue and hit us like, well, it was It was this extraordinary thing. There we were. We were at this was the best of times for yeah. us. We were doing really well vindicated. We were an out gay band and that was pushing back at sort of boundaries of exclusion and things were... Mm it was great and then all of a sudden boom this medieval plague hit people and you know in spite of being we were living in a developed economy everything that medical science medical research could provide people were dying of these kind of preposterous conditions that just tore them apart because they had no immune system and it was devastating um and you know there was from 1986 I just remember stopping keeping an address book because there were too many crossings out of people who died and there was I was seeing a photograph of I saw it a while ago and it was um, a group of us at this party I remember in Belsize Park and I realized I was the only gay man in the photograph who was living and we were exactly unlucky in that we arrived in London at the moment when gay liberation meant it was party, party, Mm. party but before anybody knew about the risks of that and safe sex came too late to save many of my peers
1: and what's awful about that is that there was a shame, which there sh- do you know what I mean about that disease as well?
0: Well, it winkled out all sorts of dark stuff in, yeah. including me, that was lurking, unexamined in the sort of deep mud. What do you mean? Well, I I, I lied about being HIV positive. I it was, I, I thought I, I I got I came in I was on tour I came ill with shingles, shingles often an indicator of um, HIV of your immune system being compromised so I kind of and in those days if you were HIV positive your chances of survival were nil practically so I remember going to have a blood test and in those days it was a sort of 10 day wait between blood test and result and in that 10 day result I remember having a row with Jimmy and I told him that I was HIV positive and he sort of was shocked by that and then when I got the <laughs> the result I was not I was the only okay? person ever to be oh no I'm HIV negative um, and then I had to sort of eventually go around and tell people who who had all been incredibly solicitous and kind to me because they thought i was hfp and it was
1: after quite a few years wasn't it
0: the gap was two or three years yeah
1: do you think also and and this may be wrong but i wonder if there was a part of you as well that you'd sort of quietly been sitting there in the background playing second fiddle no intended but it was almost like a slight cry Not for attention, because that's minimising it. That's exactly what it was. Do you think it was? I mean, it was complex. It was what about me, essentially. But part
0: of it also was a me, 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 which is such a a difficult thing to own because who wanted that kind of attention? And there were lots of people very dear to me who were experiencing that kind of attention and who would have given anything not to. Mm. But in the grip of that sort of craziness... It's interesting because I sort of outed myself about this and braced myself, and lots of people were upset about it
1: friends and things or just members of the public well my
0: best friend Matthew who I love very much and we and I grew up together we went to prep school together and I remember telling him and he was so angry that he didn't speak to me for I think six months and that had never happened before and actually it was precisely the lesson I needed because I could all of a sudden see in him why it might actually be distressing for people to think that I was going to die Mm. and uh, I was so caught up in the Kind of weird psychodrama of what's happening to me. I kind of lost. I think if you're in a pop, if you're in a pop, if you're a pop star, you become immensely self-regarding because you live in a world which is unusual and defined. Everyone is pleased to see you. Everyone defers to you. A very flattering reflections return to you, and you just start believing that stuff. And I you, you just
1: become a bit of a monster.
0: I think it's easy to become a bit of a monster. People do it in different ways, but yeah, because you know people indulge you and feed the egotism which burns like a bonfire like a furnace in fact keeps the whole thing going
1: do you think fame is an unnatural state then yeah
0: I think fame is fine as long as it's posthumous
1: oh that's interesting
0: there's a great saying of John Updike who said fame is a mask that eats the face and I think that's right you you pay a you know it's very seductive for those who are seducible by that kind of thing but you pay a price for it, and the price is a loss of yourself to things over which you have no control. Mm. And uh, and that has to be handled in one way or another. Some people crash and burn. Some people negotiate their lives very tightly and strictly, so they minimise that sense of loss. Um, others go mad.
1: Mm.
0: And of course what generally happens, the best corrective is, is that it abandons you. And then you go back to being in real life, or you know, majority life. I can remember how tough it was. I remember going to Heathrow Airport. I was going off for a dirty weekend with a nice chap. And um we were going to Paris and I went to the sort of VIP check-inny bit and I was no longer on the system. Um my star had, had waned. Mm. And then I remember moments of realising that the sort of grand behaviour I'd got away with for mm. years I could no longer get away with it. And I remember being outraged for us and thinking that people were being incredibly rude. And what I actually said was that I had got incredibly entitled. And so...
1: They were just behaving normally. Yeah. <laughs> and
0: I was having to negotiate my way through the world like everybody else. But I'd got used to not having to do that. Mm. So that was an interesting experience. Mm. I shudder with embarrassment now when I think about how hoity-toity I was. And how... I
1: just can't imagine you being like that.
0: Oh... We can introduce you to lots of people who would correct you on that one. Days, are you going to roll around come in on, shit days. or are you going to come and join us?
1: In, <laughs> so, there came a point when you were well off, luckily, because you'd had good yeah. advice and you'd invested money in a pension because you did. There's brilliant a brilliant manager. moment where you talk about saying, I, I think I bought a speedboat at I, some point. Yes,
0: it was in Ibiza. <laughs> But I don't know, it's probably rusting in some <laughs> inlet now or being used for, I don't know, people smuggling or something. But I don't know what became of it. It's, I don't know, perhaps it sank, I'm not sure. And
1: they you decided were, eventually the band... It sort of imploded, it wasn't it? Because your relationship with Jimmy was, there was a lot of...
0: Well, the relationship with Jimmy imploded and then I think both of us thought we didn't really want to do it anymore. So we didn't break up or anything because if you do that, it invites... Um, Mm. scrutiny Mm. and then that often is a sort of an invitation to say things in anger that you might regret and i had been through Mm. that before when Bronski we broke up it got quite vituperative Mm. didn't want to do that so we just stopped and didn't start again and uh, well I did it I took a year out which wasn't a super smart thing to do because I was 20 how old was I? 27?
1: God, you were so young to have sort of been in a position where you could retire financially.
0: Sort of, yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't have to worry about money, but I was so... I took a year out and, and basically just took ecstasy for a year. Ecstasy came along as a sort of club drug of choice and found a huge following in the gay community because I think life was so dark for everyone because HIV yes. and AIDS had rampaged through... I mean, we were all grieving and mad and ecstasy just gave you that... Mm. Remembered joy. So I took a lot of ecstasy. And like most people who take a lot of ecstasy, I ended up uh, sort of out of control and crashed and burned um, after the speedboat incident in Ibiza. Mm. And then that was the sort of crashing and burning was when I kind of got a grip. And then life turned around. And one of the things that came in that was a desire to go to church, which I'd I'd been a chorister when I was a kid. Your
1: literal epiphany. <laughs>
0: well, you know, what well, it really was, actually. Yeah. Um, but I needed one because I would never have got there any other way because church was hostile territory. Nothing more implacably opposed to equality for LGBT people than the church. So why the hell would you go into mm. the belly of the beast? And that's exactly what I did do because it is a place where stuff fits that doesn't fit anywhere else. What and do I you mean? Well mortality for example Mm. a rude confrontation with mortality when you're in your 20s I think it was a lot today because I've just done a funeral for a 21 year old today and it's interesting looking at the reactions of Nathan's peers, his friends that sort of shocked incomprehension Mm. at what's happened and once you start getting to grips with the reality of morality that takes you into a sort of repertoire of experience and thought that churches have dealt with for centuries you know what's a church? It's a building surrounded by our dead mm. and um, and that all of a sudden became urgent for me so I started going to church absolutely loved it and realized that I had to sort of acclimatize myself to this new territory
1: had you done therapy as well yeah I had. like like some sort of group therapy no one-on-one or therapy one-on-one. yeah
0: I've been to see a therapist in uh, in archway
1: and, d- and that was helpful very
0: helpful yeah Although I got resentful of it, didn't you? like you often do mm. in therapy, thinking... I remember thinking, well, you, you know all this stuff about me. I don't know anything about you. <laughs> and I wanted to know a little bit about what, what you think and feel. And I became very curious about my therapist, which of course happens all the time. Yeah. Um, but it was helpful. And, and then I sort of just started moving in a mm. new direction. And it turned out to be a very fruitful direction. Mm. And that was... I mean, essentially in re- retrospect, I look at it, it does seem an extraordinary gear change. But at the time, it just felt like not a choice. It was just...
1: Really? It was just the right transition for you?
0: Well, it's felt inevitable. Really? Yeah.
1: Well, it's a calling, isn't it? So I suppose... And I'm
0: not the first person whose life has been very distant from what people think church life should be who all of a sudden finds themselves in church. It's a very common experience.
1: And how did you... Did that come into it when you were deciding which particular branch of the church, you know? Did that come into it, your your well, thoughts about the LGBT thing? and
0: Well, I kind of shelved all that thinking, I'm going to just have to keep that part of my life separate from this part of my life because yes. it's such a non-compute. So, you know, system crash around that one. Mm. So I sort of parked oh. it. And then my adventures in religion took me to, I re-entered Christianity in a very, at the High Church Anglo-Catholic thing, and like lots of people who re-enter the Church of England in through that door, mm. um, it led me to become a Roman Catholic because I thought that original and best was where to go.
1: Rome. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Clarity. That's rigor.
1: I always think gold, Rome. <coughs> exactly. It's the Versace of religion.
0: And also, <laughs> it's just if you. You know, if you're in the church of england which is a sort of personality disorder in as a religion um, you're constantly having to sort of consciously define yourself against this or against that what i liked about roman catholicism was you just did it yeah you just turned up and went to mass I and always, everybody did there's
1: the sort of romantic of like when my father i remember when i was really young my That's dad was doctor. always interested in faith in a sort ah. of slightly literary way
0: i mean if you look at sort of Anglo-Catholic circles in the 20th century. Of course, T.S. Eliot was signed up to the programme and there was just a lot of really fascinating, vibrant things happening. And there was, um, and it was to do with revivals and the Church of England had got very sort of dreary and um, grey. And then along came the Anglo-Catholics who were these extraordinary flamboyant, um, often gay, uh, although they didn't have the language to call it that then, characters who sought to recover the sort of Catholic traditions of the church which had been lost after the Reformation mm. and did so in various ornate and interesting ways. But it was a very fertile world for thought and art. I mean Gerard Manley Hopkins would be a kind of key yeah. figure of that although he of course pope as we say and went over to Rome had a, <laughs> and a fairly <laughs> miserable life thereafter as a Jesuit. Um,
1: Jesuits, they're big book readers very big book readers so you so are you anglican then
0: yeah i came back to the church of england i did sort of 9 years and then realized that i missed the hymns
1: so do you not have hymns in the catholic church
0: yeah they're rubbish though i'm sorry <laughs> catholic people i mean the the traditional plain song hymns are gorgeous but the sort of parish hymns what
1: sort of things do they sing I well it's think. all
0: kind of brother sister let me serve you that kind of thing and uh, i i just this anglicanism they only do half the Lord's
1: prayer. What's all that about?
0: Make an effort. Well, there's an interesting debate there, which I won't bore you with now. But um Anglicanism, we have a saying about Clinton that lex credent lex orandi, lex credendi, that the law of how we pray is the law of what we believe. And so much of being an Anglican is about what you do in services, if you see what Mm. I mean. And so much of what's I think most attractive about Anglicanism is bound up in its choral music and its hymnody. So missing hymns is not just about wanting a good old sing song. It's about who you are, I mean, corporately and individually.
1: And do you... It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a different sort of fame, in a sense. Well, it's respect... I mean, I imagine, like I was saying when we started this, you walk down the street and there's respect and there's... Well, there's
0: lots of things, actually. But there's a dilemma in this because the prayer we as priests are called to to pray is the prayer of John the Baptist we must decrease that he might increase so for a self-regarding attention-seeking performance bunny like me um, at the heart of it is not me at all my job is to get out of the way of Jesus Christ whom we serve and so everything I do that is faithful to priesthood is about self-denial
1: I don't in know, order he's to, changed the Brian Adams song everything I do <laughs> everything I is I about do. self. Do not, but, but in order
0: to actualise the life of Christ which is what we're for we're here to serve Christ and his followers by enabling the Christ in everybody so, to be the Christ in everybody
1: so in way. this way do, is this some sort of form of atonement for your
0: no I don't think youth. it's an atonement that's a very interesting thought actually I don't think it's an atonement but I think there's something rather fitting about it yeah. that I find myself once again la 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 but there's <laughs> nothing in it for me yeah, yeah. The only thing I yes. need to do is sort of get out of the way of, of Jesus Christ.
1: Do you find? Do you find it difficult? You were talking this morning about um, there was a, a funeral service for a young guy in your yeah. parish, and is that does that sort of how do you dis- not distance yourself from that? But you know, it's like medics or something because yeah. for you it is part of your life, yes, isn't it's it?
0: It's a necessary detachment because yeah. your job is to get these people who are in grief Mm. and shock, Um, they've got to get through the day but Mm. also they've got to um, participate in this ritual that makes certain claims about a life beyond this life and that's immensely important to people who are completely stunned with loss and to try to find a way of articulating that that's faithful and intelligible Mm. and honest and deeply compassionate is the objective.
1: Well, I found, it was interesting, when I brushed with it, it was when my sister died, and I remember she wanted, she'd always be, had more faith than me, really. That was something that was important to her. But she asked to chat to someone, you know, when it was sort of nearing the end, because she died very suddenly. She had cancer. Oh. And she, I realised, you know, my dad was an atheist, and very trendy in the 60s, and all that stuff. And it was really odd how it hit me that all those Discussions and arguments we'd had about atheism in the afterlife just seemed utterly irrelevant. Because I thought, well, she's faced with... She's a mum. She's leaving two kids without a mother. And this is just her way of hoping that maybe there'll be something else. And, and who, would who deny... am I to question that, or anyone?
0: Well, I mean, it's, it's you know, the, paradox, the sort of foxhole conversion, isn't it? Is that when we are absolutely on our uppers and threatened by death, mm. our own extinction... Uh, whatever it might be, then all of a sudden you're uh, more willing to engage with those traditions that speak to that predicament.
1: Why do you think people get atheists get angry? Which because is why I, I think I we sell sub- myself an agnostic. Because, because I, I think we sell
0: them a pup, and they think that what we do is in fact try to smother those hard realities with a sort of palliative, right. uh, Which actually helps nobody and in fact perhaps just feeds our own egotism and
1: what do you say to that
0: well there's i don't <laughs> see what the point. you know our message is if you don't love you're dead if you do love you'll be killed mm. i don't really see what the palliative is there and everything that we have to say about that begins with the cross on which the most horrendous torture and death was exacted upon someone who went to it willingly mm. out of love for us mm. there's nothing sentimental about that but that has got lost I think because so much I think one of the reasons why that has gone so awry is that most people in this country about Britain Mm. stop really thinking and engaging with Christianity at the point it ceases to be compulsory which is usually at about the age of 11. Right and so most people maybe who grow up with collective worship school assembly the Lord's Prayer shine Jesus shine that leaves them when they're still in childhood. Mm. And what they don't have is a mature experience of faith. The other thing about angry atheists is that angry atheists, the God that they believe in, that the God that they're angry with and the God that they don't believe in is the God I don't believe in either. And so, you know, this idea that God is this capricious tyrant, that's not the God I believe Mm. in at all. Um, and they're often quite surprised to find out... I've sometimes described as the atheist's favourite vicar, which I'm not sure says very much about my skills as a priest, <laughs> because I'd be a very disappointing atheist. You're,
1: don't you know Richard Dawkins? You, I do, yeah. Do you, what, how do you get along with him, then? How does that? Do you, dis, do, do you say, you know what, Rich, let's, let's not talk about it tonight. Religion and politics.
0: Well, I mean, Richard has a, you know, he has a polemical role, and when he's doing his polemical thing, I would take a different view and we might engage around that, as sort of one argument against another. But personally, we get on extremely well. Mm. He loves dogs.
1: I <laughs> oh, love does dogs. He?
0: Yeah. And I remember the first time, oh, it wasn't the first right time we now. met, but I remember meeting on Newsnight when we were, I think, crossed swords in an interview. He yeah. had just lost a dog and he was deeply upset about that. So we talked oh. dogs.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. Sp- Do- dogs really unite you with people. I think, I mean, I personally, having experienced grief, I, I lost my family and i I was sort of, Surprised at how the sort of restorative power of dogs, you know, just sort of oh, spiritually tumble, and yeah. it really helps me, Richard. Like going for a walk in the morning is really important with him because I know exactly. What we, as if they're not embarrassed. Yeah. My father
0: died a couple of years ago, yeah. which is devastating. Yeah. And even though I'm, you know, around death an awful lot, and my father would deal for a long time and we could see it coming, when it came, it was a thief in the night, and I was sort of knocked over by it. And everyone's sort of nice. This an odd thing with Undertakers. We deal with Undertakers all the time. There's a sort of bantering relationship that clergy right. develop with Undertakers. And the black comedy of anyone in the death trade of course. is, fam- you know, is um, famous. Yeah. But then, so they're, they're the people who did my dad's funeral I worked with all the time, but there was none of the banter. Yeah. Because it was quite right and proper that you observe the solemnities of it. Because dogs don't do that at all. They don't no. pick up on that stuff. They're just pleased to see you. Yeah. And that's very therapeutic, I think.
1: Well, Freud always said, dogs bite their enemies and love their friends, unlike humans who bite their friends. (laughs) But its I suppose it's the idea that... I think Freud's considered problematic, I should say, by a lot of millennials now, but I, I think it's that idea that there's a simplicity towards the I mean, relationship we have with a the
0: dog? they are are different species. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at dogs with other dogs, they're endlessly immoral, <laughs> venal, self-serving, <laughs> you know what I mean? Self-regarding. But with humans, it's because... Talk on a
1: bit, Freddie Mercury. <laughs>
0: we have the power.
1: Yeah.
0: And so the only thing about dogs is because they don't choose. And I think that's often why people who feel unlovable or unloving for whatever reason, um, dogs do not require Anything other than your presence really.
1: Do you think you felt unlovable for a long time? Yes, I do. In
0: some deeply out of reach, um, damaged child sort of way. I don't think that now. Of course the great correction. Do you think fame
1: would fix that and it didn't?
0: I think there is something about if you do feel a deficit of affirmation, mm. then the roar of the crowd is very attractive, but it's a substitute for
1: the real thing. I keep throwing quotes at you but I know a priest loves a quote um, <laughs> Ernest, Ernest oh no, who is it? who said this, Scott Fitzgerald he said the sign of a good parent and this is no reflection on your parents by the way sure. but he just said the sign of a good parent the child has no desire to be famous
0: that's interesting isn't it, that there mm. is no deficit
1: there's nothing missing so my therapist always describes it as a hole that needs filling that never fills feel, full so you might choose drugs, you might choose fame.
0: Yes, I think that's probably true. Because what I got, though, was God. And there's yeah. no, you know, that holes don't come into it because everything about God exceeds and overflows. There's a wonderful imagery in the writings of Paul that I love, in which he talks about this sort of, all the dimensions, human dimensions, that you can think of are kind of burst. Mm. And have uh, the excelling, the fathomless riches of God, And I think that's true. And that's not to say that, oh, it's a substitute, God loves me, I feel fine. It's about God loves me and that changes everything.
1: But how can you, don't you get, what about when, do you get road rage? I used to. But I can't, but you're a priest. I stopped doing it. I don't know if that's allowed.
0: Well, I did stop doing it, partly because I realised what an idiot I was and how unattractive it was and how, and it was through... Actually, through my dad. My dad was a very gentle, mild person. And I remember once losing my temper with a dog, a previous dachshund Foggy, to this batch, who ran off one day. I was walking with my father, and the dog ran off and chased a pheasant, I think. And I got sort of a bit worried because dog on its own in a farmer's field yeah. is risky. And when the dog came back, I hit the dog in anger. My father yeah. just said, "Don't do that." And I remember that moment, thinking, "Why am I doing? Why am I angry with the dog? The dog's just being a dog." And what message have I given it by mm. hitting it? And why did I want to hit the dog? And I just remember my father just sort of gently saying, don't do that, and not doing it himself. Um,
1: has religion made you, and has your faith made you a nice person, do you think?
0: It's made but me kinder. Has it? I realised this, I was, I was in the car park at Kettering General Hospital where I'm in a great deal, and yeah. being in the car park at Kettering General Hospital is not a situation which is conducive to calm, tranquil existence never get short-tempered with somebody in a hospital car park because they might be having the worst day of their life and when you sort of absorb that you realize that anybody anywhere could be having the worst day of their life and so just don't get angry and i do find you know someone like me who's an active user of social media and that inevitably takes you into a political discussion and argument Oh, sometimes, but not very much. And I don't Mm. mind if I do. I'm just always really nice back. They either go away or you end up becoming friends. Mm. Um, But I do find the kind of violence and rage and aggression and sort of unreasoning rejection of any notion that there may be a common experience here that we should um, share. Mm. It's either that there's zero sum that someone is either friend or foe. And uh, I've got no time for that, I'm afraid. So I do try very hard not to lapse into that, which means that I do find on my kind of social media stuff, I find I'm having conversations with people who think very differently about all sorts of things, and I, I like that.
1: Look well, at Daisy's doing. Do you not want to walk, Daisy? No, she really doesn't want to walk. Well, you've had enough. We can have that. Come on, Daisy. Come
0: on, then, Daisy. Um, I
1: wanted to ask you about your partner. Yes. Is he your husband, David, or your partner? He's
0: my civil partner. We're not at liberty to marry, because you're in, both priests. We're both priests, but if we were to marry, then the bishop would not be at liberty to uh, licence us to do what we do because that um, is not something the Church of England is able to do. And technically
1: yet. you're meant to be celibate, aren't you, as well? Yes. So do you think, would you, do you think that marriage thing is something that should be changed? Yes. Or? Do you?
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I have personally kind of theological reservations about it. I, Personally, I find civil partnership perfectly adequate.
1: Do you? But what I
0: find completely intolerable.
1: Yeah, some of my married friends are always like to say to my gay friends, "Why would you want what we've got?" Well,
0: but <laughs> what I think is you should have the option sorry, of the Producer it.
1: got married last week. Um, sorry, hope it goes well, love.
0: Massotop, um, you should have <laughs> the option, but um,
1: you got it all wrong.
0: You should have the option, and uh, I would, I would absolutely lie down in front of the tanks of people's right to marry who they want to marry. Mm. Um, regardless of their sex.
1: Um, I'm really warm to David, your civil partner. Yes, I mean
0: people do. I don't know why. I'm warm to
1: both of you, actually. That's I can tell you, you're a very good couple. So he talked about your parish where the vicarage. we went to the vicarage. We had elderflower cordial made by him with actual elderflower in it, can I say. And David said that when you came here, I, mean, I don't know if we're allowed to tell this story but it, it involved the Commodores?
0: Oh no, that's right. <laughs> well, the word got out that I was in a band and somehow Communards became Commodores and there was this thought that they were going to get, um, not only a, they thought they were going to get a black vicar but instead they got a gay vicar. And uh, <laughs> we worked that one out.
1: Have you ever encountered anyone who's not okay with that? Yes. And how does that, how do you feel about that and how does that work? And it doesn't
0: bother me in the sense that it doesn't upset me and I don't feel uh, threatened by it Mm. I think it's just a real shame and I think if I were to be think anything sort of strategic about it it was how am I going to make it difficult for this person to hate me yeah if I can Um, and that's not to say I find as I get older I'm less inclined to to sort of mollify people, I want, I want to be absolutely clear about what I think and feel but I'm also, I'm not want to cut people off, I don't want to denigrate them, I don't want to despise them or scorn them or imagine that there might not be genuinely held belief about what they believe about mm. me and that's something which we have to respect and understand
1: mm. Do you think sometimes I mean obviously you know you don't I wouldn't ask you to talk about anyone personally but do you think it's helpful as well for someone young who maybe wanted to talk about yeah if they were coming out and didn't feel they could talk to their parents maybe that would be really helpful to them you know yeah to have you
0: well we have those conversations yeah. not infrequently yeah daisy and not just with young people finally.
1: she likes to eat it when you're holding her
0: she just likes attention she's a princess
1: I think the that's first why I want um, I'm going to go in the back because I'd like to sit with Daisy if that's all right. Of course. You can sit with the producer in the front, but I feel we need to spend some time together. Come on, Daisy, we're going to go on the blanket. She'll so love you. Look, Richard, <laughs> I mean, this is a real partnership in heaven. <laughs> She's loving it. Oh, is it OK to say that? Yeah, of course. OK. Do you mind if people say, oh, God? No.
0: I think it's absurd to expect people who are not Christians to behave... Uh, in ways as if they were. It's like when people people say, "I don't believe in God." Sorry, and I think well, I don't mind. Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I genuinely don't mind if you don't believe in God. I don't feel that. And I was why would you feel sorry? Am I supposed to feel threatened by that? Because I, I just don't. Yeah. Um, and I like I enjoy diversity. I really. I mean, I'm a vicar of a parish, four and a half thousand people. Um, and a fraction of those people attend church, a slightly larger fraction of those people, I think, would say they believed in God, but lots of people manage perfectly well without either, and I love being their parish priest.
1: We should say as well that uh, David, your partner, as he pointed out earlier, he said, well, they've got two for the price of one, (laughs) boggle. Because because you've got two priests at the vicarage.
0: Yeah, at the cost of a half stipend. At the
1: cost of a half... So, I mean, they've done well out of you.
0: Well, we've all... It's been a relationship of benefit to everyone, I'd Mm. like to say.
1: We're pulling into the vicarage, which is absolutely beautiful. And it it does say, spoiler alert, the vicarage on the gate, (laughs) in case anyone was in any doubt. But I'd feel... I just think it's very picturesque. There's even ivy on it. Yeah. We're seeing it on a lovely day because the sun's out. Daisy, you were the chosen one for the walk.
0: It's been a very enjoyable walk.
1: Come here, Daisy. Richard, can she... She can't jump down. Um, I would carry her.
0: She can, but she can't be asked.
1: (laughs) I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.